Audio conversation with filmmaker James Carmen recorded Sunday, September 21st, 2013. I first met James at a uh, UFO conference which was held in Jersey City, New Jersey in 2008, in autumn of that year, right around this time. And uh, he showed a rough cut of a documentary in progress called The Hidden Hand. Uh, I remember thinking, I I really dug it. I really liked that he was trying to uh, dig into some of the more complex aspects of the overall weirdness of the UFO phenomenon. And and he was all over the map in the sense that he was trying to cover a lot, which I which I thought was kind of daunting. Uh, and I really respected him for it. Um, uh, I later met him and hung out with him a little bit in uh, my old uh, neighborhood. He lived right down the street from my old apartment in Greenwich Village. And um, yeah, so I immediately liked the guy. I've seen him a few times since then at uh, other UFO conferences. And recently... His documentary, The Hidden Hand, is now available for purchase on iTunes. I will give a link to how to purchase it or how to, how to watch it uh, here in the show notes. Uh, before doing the audio interview, I actually watched the documentary twice, so I got uh, caught up on it. It was interesting to watch it two times within a few weeks. Uh, there is a lot of stuff here that... Any other filmmaker, let's say someone employed by a cable TV network like the History Channel or the Sci-Fi Channel, um, there are things in here that those filmmakers would certainly shy away from. Some of the more, uh, well, I want to say new agey, that's a, that's a kind of a loaded term. Some of the things that talk about consciousness and expanded consciousness. He actually has a summation of the entire documentary, the last chapter, is titled Galactic Consciousness. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that um, a more conservative, a more mainstream, and I will also say a committee of filmmakers would have not included. Uh, it is in this documentary. It, it makes it a lot richer and a lot stronger, in my opinion. Now, it, it won't take you as a listener very long to realize that James is um, a very thoughtful person. Uh, you know, very... Uh, sensitive and mindful and and uh, open-minded individual and it it uh, his passions are very clear in this interview and they also shine through in the the documentary itself now you know obviously i can't speak to the the authenticity of uh, everything that gets shared in this documentary what is interesting is that as i have immersed myself into this world to the subworld of people who who have these experiences and then are open to talking about them i've actually met a great number of the people in the documentary a few of them i i actually consider close friends so watching this was quite intimate for me uh it had an immediacy that that uh, i remember from 2008 and and it uh, has that same immediacy for me anyway uh, watching it again. Now, ages ago, I worked in the film industry in New York City, uh, mostly doing TV commercials. Uh, now, that said, I, I feel like I have a pretty good insight into what's involved in creating something like this. Now, now uh, to me, it's amazing that he pulled this off uh, with such a singular vision, you know, doing so much of the work himself. 
It's really impressive. Obviously, he was working with other folks throughout the process, but uh, this is his baby. Uh, This interview runs about an hour and ten minutes. I enjoyed it greatly. James is a thoughtful, insightful guy. Please enjoy. Hey, James, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Thank you, Mike. It means a lot to me that you're interested. Yeah, and I'm very interested, obviously, for for my own reasons. The, the subject itself is obviously fascinating. Now, the the this this project, I saw a cut of it in 2008. So now, how long have you been working on this project? It just seems like it's been kind of a uh, an ongoing thing for a number of years now. Well, what you saw was kind of a. I think it was like a 20 or 30 minute rough cut. It may be. Oh, I think it was longer than that. I think it was about 45 minutes. Okay. Well, it was, it was just putting it together. I initially started in 2004, but I was doing a different kind of project. I was doing a documentary, but with Al Bielik and Gloria Hawker, but it was, it was kind of like a artsy documentary with a lot of narrative scenes in it and like a storyline that went through. And then I had some, interviews woven within and um i just after screening it that way a couple times i decided to take that out because it just seems like it was too complicated for people to understand that it was two different styles and so they they would seems like people would be confused that it was a narrative all of a sudden when it was a documentary film now i remember that there were scenes with folks i think in a in a station wagon driving through the desert and kind of picking up hitchhiker and there was some indian um like native american lore kind of woven into it am i remembering that correctly yeah um and i love that stuff and so that's why i was so reluctant to get rid of it but i think it was a good move when i actually did and um you know i i think i'd like to put it together like in a little hour movie sometime um wouldn't be that hard for me to do but uh, we'll just see so so when did the project start project started around 2004 and now it's yeah 2013 so that's almost 9 years. Yeah, well I finished it like over a year ago. But then I had to there was a lot of there were some changes I had to make because my lawyer said I should change some things and um so th- then that takes a little bit of time and yeah. I mean so, it's been it's been basically in in since 2011, it's been finished, and I've just made t- teeny little additions here and there, and um, yeah, it, it, there's a lot that goes in the legal side of things, and the, that you have to t- take care of, and it, it takes a while, you know, the, the whole contracts, the distribution deals, all that kind of stuff. So, just out of curiosity, what were the, what were the legal issues? Can you say? Yeah, well, there were some corporations that I had mentioned that I he said, look, take it out. Um, just more like in terms of defense corporations, that was that was the main thing. Oh, so so it. somebody would say like uh, the name of, um, you know, McDonnell Douglas or something like that, you know, and then... Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I need, uh, there's obviously a lot of uh, you know, Raytheon and stuff like that. Okay, I could see that being an issue. Okay, fair enough. Um, and that, that wouldn't necessarily change the flavor or the tenor of the overall project. No, not okay. at all. And um, now this, my sense was, that, that is that looking at this project is that uh, 
it felt very personalized. It did not feel like it was the creation of a committee. It also did not feel like entertainment. You know, like it felt like a very strong, singular vision. It, you covered a lot. So, I mean, did you, were you working um, with a team or was this all just you? Well, it was mostly me, but then I had a couple of people that helped me edit it. And, um, you know, I've, I had a, another producer that helped me with some of the contacts and the, the legal contacts. And, um, I had someone else help me. Obviously, my lawyer had helped me with the contracts, but I had another person help me with the contracts. So it's it's never like a one-man team, but often I would be traveling around the the country or the world with a, a little light case and a camera and you know a sound recording kit, and I would be doing it by myself. Now, that was when I saw you. Ooh, I can't remember. It was probably two years ago, maybe two or three years ago. Maybe I saw you at the UFO Congress in... Scottsdale and uh, I can't remember we ran up to your room for some reason and you did have a great big green screen there and a camera uh-huh. and all set up and so in that that looked like it was all just you just you setting everything up and and yeah. conducting interviews there yeah I I love to interview people I guess you do too it's there's something very wonderful about it it's uh, it's such a beautiful exchange with another person and um, you know it's it's not like you're you're going for, in front of the high, the board of high science or anything like that. And, um, it's, I I do it wherever I am. If there's people that I want to talk to, I ask them if I can interview them and I'm not always sure what it'll be used for, but I'm sure it will be used down the road. Yeah. Now that was one of my questions here is that I, I just have to assume, you know, there's folks in there, you know, Whitley Strieber shows up for, you know, a sound bite, maybe Uh a little bit more, uh, you know, and I have to assume that there's some great footage of him, you know, just sitting there unused right now. And do you have any plans to like post these on, on a website or, or do a, you know, I guess DVD extras or something like that? Well, there's so much that it'd be hard. I mean, I did put a couple extras on the DVD and I do have a distributor for the DVD and, and it's not going to come out until December or January right now. But um, I, yeah. I, I would like to put some of it online, definitely. But there's so many people I've interviewed, and there's there's so much material that I have that I can't even put that on a DVD. So it's going to have to be something that's put on a a bigger website, and then people will, could have access to it. And so, and is there anyone that you shot uh, for the documentary that you had to cut out at the end, and you wish? There were plenty of people. There were a lot of people, actually. One was Sharon Gannon. I don't know if you know her. She's a she's a very respected yoga teacher. And um, she talked really about kind of how you approach an ET as how you would approach anyone or any animal. It's the same precepts. And um, she also talks about, you know, if you're having to defend yourself, you know, that you'd ha- you can defend yourself, but you also have to bless the person that you're attacking in that moment or and have to realize in a, in a way that it's uh, that it's your karma, that's your responsibility, even if you're put in a situation where you have no other choice. I mean, it was ve- philosophically, I found it very interesting. I loved it. it. It just seemed a little maybe too too much for the film in terms of like, it, it, I hadn't really delved into that subject matter. So uh, I thought m- maybe it wasn't pr- appropriate to put it in. And then um, there's another 
woman I interviewed, she did the, the alien love bite. Oh yeah. Eve, Eve. Morgan, Sure. And, um, she's great. You know, I love her stuff. And, and I agree. Uh, I agree. And, uh, it would have been nice to put in a whole chapter there. Uh, it's just gorgeous stuff. Uh, I mean, there, there are actually so many people that I that I interviewed. There are quite a few that I didn't put in that I would have really loved to have. Even even people that are quite well known, um, like Travis Walton. Uh, I just felt like you know before I just put in one little soundbite of him, because this the the film was almost already finished. That it's better just to put something else in rather than something that a lot I feel I felt that a lot of people had heard of. Um, and then, um, you know, they're just um, bearish. I, I just had one bite of him. In, in, oh, Bashar? No, Bear. I have Bashar actually, too. Bashar. No, no, oh, Dan Barish. Yeah, that's yeah. Dan Barish. Okay, that's right. In fact, I was just watching just before we, we uh, I rang you up here. I, I started watching it, and I, and I got about halfway through. So this is probably my third time seeing it. Um, and uh, it was right around the Dan Barish thing. And I was like, oh, I forgot he was in that. So, oh, anyway, yeah, so um, keep going. Yeah, so I mean, I, lo I lo love you know to hear him talk, and there's so many interesting aspects to his story, and uh, you know Bashar even I ha I have tons of great stuff with him, and and it just seemed if I start putting in channeling, it's too left field in terms of being like a serious documentary. I don't really feel that way, but I just know that when I showed it to people, they just said you know, this is crazy. You know, that, that's interesting. I, that was a conversation I remember you and I had, I think it was right when we met, um, mm -hmm. uh, at, at the, when it was screened in 2008, uh, I was there, I watched the whole thing and I, and I remember you and I talking, you kind of gave me this thing like, well, what'd you think of the channeling part? And I remember saying like, whoa, I loved it. I was all for it, uh -huh. but I know just what you mean. So, yeah. So I don't, I, I understand why it's not in there. But oh, it's uh, so I interviewed Bashar now, and he had a very profound UFO sighting close up, I think in 1973 or four or five, uh -huh. and that was, you know, what he says was the the you start. You're talking of his, about Daryl Anka. Daryl, excuse me, yes, Daryl Anka. I interviewed right. Daryl Anka, the, the the person who channels the the uh, entity that we call Bashar. So yes, I, I interviewed Daryl Anka, and he talked about uh, a close up sighting in the 70s that he said was his, the, you know, the reason he's channeling now was, was be directly because of that, that close-up sighting. Yeah, and I mean, there's been so many people, other people I've you know, uh, interviewed, Bette Dawson I love, um, uh, Carol oh, Rosen, Charles Hall, uh, you know, there's so many, um, Charles Halt, I didn't put him in, he's fascinating, you know, but then it's like, do you concentrate on the, in Rendlesham incident or, you know, it's, it, there's just a lot of different ways you can go, but, um, uh, obviously, you know, David Ike, David Jacobs, Daryl Sims, I just had little bits of these people in there. Roger Lear is great. I mean, I just have a little bit of him. Dr. Stan Monteith, I don't know if you know him, but he speaks about ETs from a Christian point of view. And, and I think that he's fascinating. And, uh, then I've, I've talked to a, um, a Christian archaeologist who has similar ideas, and uh, I think it'd be interesting to have a whole kind of Christian or Islamic point of view. Uh, and um, you know, then I've also obviously I talked to um, 
Uh, A.J. Gavart, who's very interesting, he talks about everything that's been happening in South America. And uh, Humbatsman, I don't know if you know Humbatsman. No. He's like, he's like one of the, the leaders of the Mayas, one of the spiritual leaders of the Mayan. And he's he's an incredible guy, you know, and just to have been able to talk to him, I thought was great. Um, you know, James Bartley, he's interesting. I love James Gilliland. I mean, he's incredible. And uh, I could only, I only used him a little bit of him, but he's just an amazing guy. Jim Sparks, I love Penniston. I love, and I would just use, bit, bit, you know, little bites of these people. Um, like J.J. Hurtock is incredible. Joe Montaldo, I think he's really amazing. Oh, is he on? I don't think he No, he's him. not in there because he kind of talks about, you know, when I interviewed him, he he was kind of filling in places that where other people had, uh, had talked about in a way, but in a way he, he speaks about it better in, in some ways. So it's just at that time, I felt like I just couldn't add more and more and more people because then it, it already seems maybe like there's too many people in it. In like conventional documentary filmmaking, you, you, you keep it less so it feels more homogenous and not so fractured. But I, I did it the way I did it just because I wanted to have all those voices. And in a way, I think that that gives it a certain strength that that it's really like, wow, there is it's just not a, a few crazies. There's like a lot going on in a lot of different people who are seemingly sane are concurring with it on one level or another. Um, Oh, go on. Kathleen Martin, she's great. I, I talked to Lloyd Pye. I don't know if you, you know him. He's, I know Lloyd Pye, yep. He's he's great, you know, but then in Michael Cremo, I love, but then it goes back to the ancient stuff, which I was initially thinking of putting in, but then it just, it didn't work. I mean, I didn't have any space and it, it in a way you would have to do a film about it. And I thought also there was, there was ancient aliens was tapping on so much of that stuff, don't you think? I mean, I don't know if we really need to have that ancient alien aspect anymore. I mean, I haven't looked at all of their shows or anything, but I mean, what, do you feel like they did a good job? Well, the TV show, I've only seen the TV show a few times, a few uh -huh. episodes, and and it's kind of interesting because you don't need to, I don't know, you don't really need to convince me. I'm sort of at the place where, like, I, I just see that as, as, a, as a reality, you know, that, uh -huh. that, that there's been some sort of influence you know, where the influence is, is another question, but I just kind of sense that that influence is, is in place. And then also, to be honest, the TV show Ancient Aliens is the type of, of cable TV documentary filmmaking that I just loathe. Um, I just can't stand it. And, and that was one of the things that I found very refreshing about this is that it was, you know, it didn't, it, it didn't treat me, the viewer, like I had a, like a, you know, a detention span in the, seconds you know like right. uh i mean the, just the rapid fire editing and the the dramatic music and then the the, the repetition even of of uh, modern cable tv filmmaking uh, just just as, i just find it so insulting as a viewer you know the content the content is interesting you know they're they're uh -huh. tapping into stuff that i'm fascinated by but i just can't stand the the, the production of it yeah and i also interviewed wendell stevens before he died and i think you know, he was an amazing guy. I loved him. And, uh, you, you know, it was, there was many people. I, you know, there was an old Puerto Rican woman that I'd interviewed. And, and it was interesting. I, I loved her and I loved Wendell Stevens, but they were older and they were missing a tooth. 
And anytime I would show it, they'd say, like, how can you believe these people? They don't even have te all their teeth in their mouth. You know, which for me was just like, okay, they're old. They they just don't want to put a, another tooth back in. I mean, I can understand that. But, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's not acceptable in terms of filmmaking to have people talking without that are missing some of their teeth. Oh, that's very interesting. Now, I can totally see that. You know, it's sad to say, but I, that, that reaction does not surprise me. Um, there's a part of me that would just say, like, screw it. I'm going to put it in there anyway. But, uh, um, but I, yeah, I can understand. Now, when you were doing, did you ever do, like, formal questionnaires or stuff like that? Or were you just, like, sort of anecdotally just listening to people as they talked about the, their impressions? Um, you know, when, when, you were, when you were screening the, the thing and just the feedback from viewers, did you? No, I made, I made tests. I, made, I had test questionnaires. And, and oh, okay, good. Had, okay, great. I had people test screenings and had people fill them out. And um, I have to say they were helpful, uh, definitely helpful. And uh, one screening I had was, I'm a member of the Producers Guild here in New York, and I showed it to them, I guess, a version like 2009. And uh, my God, they, they really, really trounced on me. Oh, no, just <laughs> they, I'm curious, what was, what was their take? They just, they didn't like the style. They didn't, you know, they thought it should be more anecdotal, but I should just take a couple cases and follow people around. You know, they just thought some people were way too crazy. And, and also I had a lot, I had a, two rape scenes where women were talking about how they were raped. And uh, that was just too heavy. You know, it was just like, and, and I saw it too, it just people shut down. And there was a point where it was just, it was so heavy that the viewers would just shut down and then they say, okay, you know, I'm finished with your film. See you later. You know. Huh. Okay. Now the, the rape scenes, that would have been less sort of like the, I just have heard stories directly from people oftentimes involving reptilians where they, they talk about, uh, I mean, there's a lot of weird sex that shows up in the, you know, once you start digging into the, to the abduction phenomenon, especially once you add, you know, the reptilians into the mix, you know, so that was in that context, the, the, well, the it's not only in that context. I mean, it is in that context, but then it's also in the context of the my lab stuff okay. where, where it seems like they would rape people just to keep their programming in place. Yes. And I have certainly have talked to some of the people that have that tell of that story, which I, which is, yeah. um, and Melinda Leslie was great. I mean, I talked to. Oh, Stan she she's Romanek. not. She doesn't show up in the documentary, does she? Yes, she does. She's okay. There. She's okay. And, I, I and just... Stan Romanek, I I I love him, and and you know, I was going to use one of his stories, but I felt like you know, in a way, it's a dis doing a disservice to him because I'm just going to put in one story, and and so I felt like I interviewed him too late in my process, but I, he gave me a great interview, and and uh, so did Stephen Bassett, and you know, so it's. Yeah, you can you, you work with what you can. We, you have to also think about the film as a whole. And, you know, at first it was two hours or even over two hours. And then I in my mind, I could tell even if I thought it was a good cut and I was showing it, still people started to tune out. You know, if you're in a good narrative film and you're in the flow of the story and you have all that emotion, you can stay longer. But I felt like 80 minutes was a hard out for me and so I cut a lot of stuff that I really loved but it's just like I felt like I, it can't go longer than 80 minutes because then even then I felt it can be a couple of minutes shorter but I just I just don't want to 
exhaust my viewers. Yeah. So yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, this is so interesting. What I'm I'm just I just my I'm gonna play you know whatever. I'm gonna encourage you to find some some uh, outlet for these these interviews. You know. Yeah, and I uh, interviewed uh, Princess Kaowu. Do you know her? She's a Japanese princess. I've, I've actually met her very briefly. So just yeah. I said hello to her at a conference. Does she have some sort of involvement with the UFO contact thing? Would she be an abductee or a contactee? Co- contactee, but she, it all started when she was in Jordan and she was meditating. She got struck by lightning. And then just like pff, everything opened up for her, her healing capacities and also capacities to communicate with ET. Now, it's interesting because there was a handful of folks in the film. I'll just think of Lynn Buchanan, in a way, tells a story that uh, I, I, I've never really heard him tell it publicly, but it is it is written where he'll tell a story and it sounds very much like what we would call a classic abduction experience in his youth. And and then he goes on to be a remote viewer, you know, that has these psychic skills. Uh, and I and actually, so I don't have any evidence that Lynn Buchanan, he's never said that I know of that he's a contactee or an abductee, but his, some of his stories certainly imply that. No, he is. I mean, he's... He's one of those people that it sounds like an abductee, but from his point of view, he says, you know, he, he wasn't mishandled and that they actually communicated to him and were very above the line. So, yeah, he's, he's definitely had those experiences. Okay. That was, that's my sense. Yeah. So, um, wow. And it was, yeah, it's interesting him. And then if you look at, um, Clifford Stone, he's also had those experiences from childhood. It was so it looks like they were kind of schooled into the the what they were doing and and they weren't allowed to become high officers because they were they wanted to be just used for certain skill set that they had. I felt I mean you could make that argument and then um you know even uh who is the the alien hunter? I I have him just oh, Daryl Sims, in this, I think it's a similar case with him. He's also someone who's had his experiences and then was in the military. He was in Korea and he was in Vietnam. Yeah. Now, I just interviewed Jim Mars recently. And one of the questions I asked was, uh, you know, that there's a few folks in the uh, remote viewing program that have seen, in Lynn Buchanan was the example I used, that, that tell stories that sound a lot like abductions. And then he quickly interrupted me and he said, all of them, they're all abductees. He just was straight out. He said, listen, I talked to all of them. They're all abductees. Some people are open about it. Some people, you got to pry it out of them, but that's, you know. And I was just, that, that to me is so fascinating. No one's saying it. He's saying it. Um, and my sense is that there's probably... Uh, you know, I don't know how to say it, like in boot camp or in the induction process when you become a a, a, a grunt, you know, or like when you, when you join the military, is there some system in place where they, the military, you know, keep their eyes out and have a have a way to figure out who or who isn't an abductee because of that psychic component? No, but it's it's much earlier. They they know who the kids are in childhood, and they kind of so shepherd the kids. In, ch- in childhood and, and kind of make it possible for them to go into the armed services or make it attractive. Now, who is they? Is they the, the, the ETs or is they the, the sort of government, you know, secret government operatives? I would say it's secret government. I mean, that, that's what Clifford talks about. He said, you know, he had a, a captain that would always 
uh, shepherd him, and, and he meet, met him when in buy comics for him, and you know he went and introduced himself to his parents, and and just over the years he was always there and was always kind of playing a a, a vuncular role, and uh, he was instrumental in Clifford getting into the service somehow. Now that so this is interesting. I have another story where someone. This is a personal contact. I'm not going to. Um, divulge the name. It just wouldn't be right here in this format. But this person told me a very similar story. This person is, as far as I can tell, has had lots of contact experiences with, you know, whatever, whether it's aliens or ETs or whoever it might be, and then had someone in their life playing that same role. And then this person went on to do some sort of covert uh, remote viewing work. And I'll also say this person is extremely mixed up, extremely uh, tense and and uh, challenged as far as the way they talk about their experiences. The implication being that they were mm-hmm. sort of aggressively debriefed in a way that, that mm-hmm. messed them up. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's a thought. Now, is there anyone that you chose specifically not to interview that like you felt there was pressure to interview them, or or that you chose not to interview, or you sort of avoided? No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, there were a couple people that I didn't get that I wanted. Um, uh, one was, and I probably could have, but it's just like, for me, it's just like, you have to go on, you know, the go with the process. And if, if it's happening, it's not happening. One was um, the, the Frenchman who I admire a lot. Um, It'll come to me in just a second. I don't know why I'm, I'm not fr- remembering right now, but um, you know, I think he's fascinating. The the Magonia book that he wrote, I think, is just oh, brilliant. Oh, oh not, not Jacques Vallée. Jacques Vallée. Well, he I actually definitely... that does not surprise me that he didn't that you couldn't interview him uh-huh. because he's very very cautious. Is my understanding is how he. But he's a very know. nice guy. He's a very much of a gentleman, and um, uh, so I liked interacting with him, but he just, he, he says that, you know, the, the field is so muddled, there's nothing I can say that will unmuddle it. So, um, which may be true to his credit, but I, I, I definitely do like his perspective. Oh, so do uh, I. Yeah, he's, he's actually one of my heroes in this, in this funny, weird realm. Yeah. Um, oh, and I'm glad you got the chance to interview um, Bud Hopkins. Yeah, Bud I loved. He was really great. I liked him a lot. Now, did you just uh, show up at his house and just shoot it there? Okay, great. Okay, that's I. Well, I had a chance to work with Bud very briefly uh, in about two thousand eight. So two thousand seven, two thousand eight. I worked. I remember with him. that actually. Yeah. I, I remember you. You were gonna go visit him. Um, yeah, and Dr. Stephen Greer. I had asked him, but he was very busy and he didn't seem that interested. So, um, so I didn't get a chance to interview him. But you know, I think obviously the the work he's done in Washington and the press club's pretty amazing. Yes. And at the same time, I, you know, I consider him a very divisive character in the whole field. He's, he's kind of, uh, you know, I, I think he's done more bad than good in a way, um, in the big picture, his own ego is his own worst enemy. Um, so. Right. But I'm, I'm still, I think that neither here nor there, I think uh, it would have been nice to, to have him talk about setting up the first, press conference and in, in going public, so to speak, or that, that I think was a very important event. And um, I would have loved to have talked to him about that. 
Agreed, agreed. And that, that is something I can, you know, whatever, as much, I, whatever, given, uh, I, he's, he's one of the characters, he's a big boy, and I don't, you know, whatever, I'm, I, I'm very cautious in this field to, to be der, derisive or, or divisive. And, um, but he is, he's one that, uh, that, that, um, you know, he, he pushes my buttons, just something about him. Um, I watched him talk at a conference, and he said some things that I just, I just didn't trust that they were real. But, but, uh, but I did notice that he was missing in the, in the, you know, he actually, as I have this piece of paper here, like his name is written on the list because he's one of the folks that did not show up in the, in the documentary. Right. Yeah. And that was just because, you know, I was, he was at a concert, a conference and I went up to him and said, Hey, can I interview you? And he said, no, I'm too busy. And so, yeah, so I didn't interview him. Okay. Um, now there was a, there's a heavy focus though, not entirely Mm-hmm. on the military thing, including even the poster that you created, which is, uh, you know, mm-hmm. of, you know, man in an air, it looks like an air force uniform with, you know, the, his face is half alien, half human. Mm-hmm. And does that, that person looks suspiciously like Colonel Alexander. Did that happen on purpose? No, I, th- I think he looks a little bit like Nathan Twining. Oh, okay. Uh, in a way. I mean, he, I guess he does look like Colonel Alexander too. Uh, but um, yeah, that wasn't on purpose because I mean, you know, Colonel Alexander looks like a, a colonel because of he has, you know, graying hair and it's short and, you know, he's still slim. So, that, you know, and he's a Caucasian. So maybe those are the. And you only see half his face. The, yeah. So. The, the, yeah. Similarities. But so now, now the, the I, I didn't go through, but do you have like a percentage of the film? I mean, it seems like less than half of the film is devoted to the government you know, whether that be government conspiracies or what the government may or may not know. Um, and the rest of the film, you know, more than 50% is dedicated to the, the, uh, the rest of the phenomena, particularly mm-hmm. it seemed like the, the heavy focus on the abduction aspects. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I felt it was important to talk about the abduction because it, in some ways I feel like they don't necessarily, the abductees, they don't get a fair shake because a lot of people think, oh, they're just, you know, wallowing in negativity and they're being victims. And uh, sometimes I, I, I see that people have a kind of Pollyanna approach to this whole field and, and they just, oh, the ETs couldn't be, have anything negative or want anything that is uh, not to our benefit. And I mean, that may be true, but it may not be true. And I just felt like, you know, obviously these are people who've had very intense experiences and they should, I felt like it should be covered in a fair way. Now that's interesting because um, I had a conversation, I don't think I'm sharing anything out of sorts here, with James Fox. This would uh-huh. have been last year at the at the UFO Congress in mm-hmm. Scottsdale. And uh, another documentary filmmaker with a very similar first name to yours, uh, and he was talking about he's working on a documentary project um, that he wants to release theatrically, uh, and I think his documentaries are very good. And he, you know, said, "Oh, it was about the UFO phenomena." And the first thing out of my mouth was like, "Oh, are you going to cover abductees?" And he said, "Oh, no, we're not going to cover that because you know, you just it's just you know, we want to we want to like." win people over. We want to like, you know, prove our point. We don't want to add something so strange. And I remember being sort of like shocked. I mean, on one level, personally, I was offended in a way. And then I was, you know, sort of shocked. And it's kind of like, you're kidding. Like this to me is the, is the, if it's real, and I very much believe it is, 
it's the most important aspect of the entire phenomenon that people are being directly contacted in these, you know, divergent, you know, mysterious ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and the thing is, is it's there's a there's a new historical aspect. And it's also an ancient aspect. This has been going on as long as we've been around. Uh, if you look at shamanism, in shamanism, it's the, the, there's a posture that they lay in that's kind of reclined on an inclined plane in a way, in that somehow that helps them connect to the spirit world. But the spirit world in a lot of these encounters is not pleasant at all. They're taken, a lot of times they're taken against their will or, or they develop a, a, a relationship and then they lay down in this inclined way and somehow that helps the the contact or the connection and um you know they're they're surgically implanted they're surgically worked on their semen is taken they have spirit partners they have spirit children it's the same thing and so if you look throughout all of history that this phenomenon has been going on and uh it's just being called by other names and uh that I think is pretty amazing. Plus the fact that, you know, for one, because we think, okay, we, we run this place, this planet is ours, right? And that we have this kind of this bravado in a way. And then also the fact that, that, you know, there's claims of hybridization and genetic tampering. And I mean, that's, that's where we, it's like, it's not even, you don't even have control of your own race anymore which is, it, it's very visceral, and it just, uh, I think it's very powerful. Now, this is interesting. You brought this up totally without, uh, without me prodding you. One of the questions I ask everyone who comes on this, this uh, podcast, and I'm not even sure why I ask it. I just think it's an interesting question. I get interesting answers, is about shamanism. And, I, and the question I'll ask it to you is like this. Here's the question I ask is, what is the role of the shaman in our everyday modern life? What's well, the same as it's always been? The shaman, he is one who travels between the upper worlds and the lower worlds. He's a mediator between the spirits. Between, and it's maybe it's too general to call them spirits, but you know, if if you go through the upper worlds, there's certain kind of spirits or entities that live there, and in the lower world, there's also other kinds of spirits. And he is the person who souls travel. So if he can go to another place and grab part of someone's soul that has been taken and bring it back and then reincorporate it into who's ever ill. So, and this is uh, psychological illness, it's physical illness. So I think in, in some ways the, the shaman is someone who has the same awareness and, and unfortunately, maybe we could train our shamans a little better because but i think there are plenty of good ones out there and um these are people who have experience they know how to travel to different realms different realities back and forth and um you know if if there is a different aspect or a different dimensional reality that is let's say impinging on someone then they would be able to help that person Okay, great answer. Now, the reason I ask this question over and over again is because my sense is that we in society 
our present day Western, you know, pop culture mm-hmm. society is, is, doesn't have a shaman. You know, we're mm-hmm. adrift in a way because there's no one to play that role. And that, that what I'm attempting to sort of scratch around the, the edges of is, you know, what is the role of the abductee? What is the role of the contactee? You know, is, you know, where, you know, that, that there's, to me, there seems to be a blurring, a very fuzzy line between the role of these people who tell of these contact experiences. Oftentimes the contact experiences are very dark, very frightening, very negative. You know, the, the initiation process of a shaman is, is nothing to be taken lightly. It is a very, uh, you know, dark and, and frightening experience for the, for the young initiate. And I just see the parallels, uh, you know, and a part of the reason I say this is because John Mack wrote a book, uh, his final book on the abduction phenomena was called Passport to the Cosmos, where he compares and contrasts the shamanic initiation to the modern day abductee. And, uh, and I'm just, that's so, so in a way, I guess I'm, I'm just seeing if you sense the role of the abductee in our present day society as playing well, some sort of role. But I don't, and generally I don't see it because it's it's only if they kind of rise above what's happened to them and then grow spiritually and consciously, then they, then they they can be of use. And obviously, a lot of abductees, you know, over a lifetime, m- most of them they come to terms with what's happened to them, and they they tr- they try to see it in a different light, in a more positive light, but. No, I don't think everyone is to the level where they can really help out other people. And I'm sure there are some of them and a few of them, but um, I, I think there, it would be great if there were more. Oh, I agree. I agree. And it's just, this is something I, I don't have a good answer for. So yeah, I'm just trying to wrestle with these ideas, you know, using this podcast forum. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you got to interact with a lot of abductees and abduction was a big focus um, so what was it like getting the chance to interact with so many people with these extremely odd experiences? Well, you know, I have to say I liked them. You know, most everyone, I, I felt like they were, I didn't find anyone that I didn't feel was a straight shooter. And, um, you know, even someone like Al Bielek, who I really, really liked, he was a good friend of mine, um, who has... Th- a very crazy story by any standards, but he owned that story, and he and so it was very true for him. I know that, and and I know I can't say you know if all of it was real or part of it, or I can't say say anything. But I mean, I, he was also a per- person that was really brilliant, and and it was great to have to hang out with him and people would just gather around him and listen to him speak wherever we, we went. And that was amazing. And, and I, I do sense a lot of trauma in a lot of abductees. I sense a lot of trials and tribulations, and I sense a lot of courage kind of having where they've pulled themselves together and, and made the best of what, what they could with their life. And some have done amazingly well, and some really haven't done that well. And um, I think that's amazing, like the whole disparity you see. Some are quite successful, and some are kind of just barely managing. I remember being here in New York. I was watch. I was walking along the street, and there was a guy in anguish, and he was yelling. 
and he was saying that he had just been in an underground bases and that you know they were torturing people and doing genetic experiments on them and i i mean i couldn't say if that was true or not but it was just something i'd never seen in new york before and um obviously the guy was in 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 enormous psychological pain oh that breaks my heart to hear that kind of thing that was one of the things that yeah that that like oh that having lived in new york you know just being immersed in the soup of humanity in a way is just so different than where i live now where it's just so pristine and idyllic and i just feel like there's something powerful and important about you know rubbing shoulders and you know sharing the sidewalk with 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 exactly that kind of story oh let me just read through the notes here a little bit oh okay so so now after uh speaking with so many uh abductees do you say do you, what sort of patterns were you seeing in their experiences or let's say not so much in their experiences of just of just them as individuals were you noticing anything that that sort of uh like uh i don't want to say a marker or anything like that but just things that they shared as far as part of their personalities or part of their story well i can i could pick up that there was a kind of uh a trauma the definitely like a shell shockness not all, not always right up on the front with some it were they were much more where you could see it evident and others it was kind of more in the background but i i definitely did pick up that that's interesting because i sense that too i sense that too now now i'll also um you know i i've shared a little bit i haven't talked to you in a long time about my own experiences but a lot has happened since the last time we spoke and um uh, that is actually something that uh, I have been attempting to try to figure out in my own life if, you know, what has been going on in, in that realm. Um, because I've had, I've been very, very open on this podcast forum with, with this stuff and how I'm dealing with it and what's been going on. But that is actually one of the things I've spent time with therapists. You know, you sit in a therapist mm -hmm. and you sit on the couch and you're telling her problems. And I had one therapist quite recently just look at me and just without knowing anything about the UFO stuff, just say, I think there's trauma in, that, that took place in your life. What you're describing is the, the way people who have had trauma would describe their lives. Mm -hmm. So um, and now I don't have any memory of any trauma. So it's very distressing to hear that and then, and then factor in the UFO contact experience, which I feel strongly has intersected with my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the post-traumatic stress, you know, I think... If, in, if you look at many of the, the general questionnaires, it's pretty easy to ascertain if someone's gone through something like that or not. Yeah, yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Um, if the, your, 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 the documentary culminates with a chapter called Galactic Consciousness, which I thought was a big deal. You know, here you're dealing with these very dry, pragmatic things, you know, looking at government documents and talking to people who've, you know, seen lights in the sky, and then to end it with something um, that would that strays well beyond the mindset of a standard nuts and bolts bolt mindset, you know, galactic consciousness. And, and what was your inspiration? Why, why did you end it like that? Well, I feel that that's where we are going and where we have to go. I, f I feel we have to, like, if, if people, let's say they're having contact to the other, and, you know, we don't, we don't really know how malevolent this is, or and there is many different shades to it. It could be some, you know, some that are very malevolent and some that are are quite positive. But that whole 
contact to the other, I think it has to bring us up a notch in terms of where we are consciously and what and our understanding of the, the universe, spiritually and physically, obviously. And so I just want to embrace that and not say, oh, we're, we've been victimized of oh, these people. They, they're treating us like cattle, like, you know, the way we treat cattle like cattle. Yeah, and, and, and you even address that right in the very beginning of the documentary where you have the imagery of the, the, the Reese's monkeys all in the medical lab, all in their cages, the very distressing imagery. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, think so it's you, important. I think it's important to, because if you always think you're better than everything else, then you're going to, at some point, you're going to be in for a shock. And so I think it's important to treat animals well. I think it's important to treat the earth well. And uh, unfortunately, the, the majority of us are, are not doing that. And uh, I think if we can change that energy, then perhaps we can also change the energy of the other that is interacting with us because we'll be in a different place. Um, it's like Bashar t talks about, he says, you know, if you change your vibration, then they won't even be able to find you. It's, it's like, there won't be a connection that could be had. So, but, but getting back to galactic consciousness, I, I do feel that there is a tremendous spiritual growth going on in the planet right now and tremendous interest also. And then obviously we are going out into space. And I think that's exciting. It's wonderful. But I, I would just like us to see go out into space as explorers, as um, like children with curiosity, not like um, with armies that are wanting to subdue and, and conquer everything we come into contact with. Yeah, the very sort of male mindset, you know, of, of uh, you know, I just think of like the you know, Columbus showing up on the shores of the new world and just planting the flag and declaring it as owned by Europe, you know, right. uh, that, that mindset, you know, is as outdated as that seems, I think is still ever present in our, in our, in our collective Western psyche. Totally. It's just like, okay, we're going to go bomb Libya. We'll bomb Syria. What? We'll, it's just like, you know, why? Because we can. Yeah, no, and I just think when we get to Mars, we'll figure out a way just to declare it ours in a way that, you know, that, that just harkens right back to, you know, it's a possession. You know. uh -huh. Well, the first thing we did when we landed on the moon was first the Masonic flag and then the U.S. flag, right? Yeah. So, so, so nothing, nothing new there. Hey, what was Edgar Mitchell like? He was a very nice guy. I mean, I felt he was maybe a little stressed out. I was, I, I interviewed him at a uh, X conference in D.C. And so there was a lot of people wanting his time and, um, he generously gave me maybe 10 or 15 minutes and, um, you know, I was very happy about that. But, uh, you know, I think also he, he's, he doesn't want to be misrepresented. And so he was, you know, just made sure that I was a straight shooter. Oh, good. Okay. Cause he comes across great in the film and he's got a great yeah. presence in the film. So, uh, oh, good. That's good to know. Cause I mean, he's and just, he's, he's one of those characters that sort of is part of the, of like the, ufo whatever dialogue in a way and at the same time you know he's he's I, I suspect he's very cautious in the way he frames things and um i'm always pay attention whenever i see a little clip of him yeah and i think people don't really know his whole background which is pretty amazing 
you know, besides being a, a Navy captain, which is as high as you can be in the Navy, he's, he's a decorated war hero, two PhDs from MIT, and, you know, he started um, IONS, and all this, you know, arguably all this stuff with remote viewing, he was linked into that world, and uh, he was very much fostering it, and uh, I think he's, he's really done a lot of amazing things. Yeah, so the IONS would be the Institute of Noetic Sciences out of the uh, Bay Area? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, and that's interesting because there is a, uh, and I, I've found very little, there's a, there's a, that ever, they, they, uh, where they talk about the UFO phenomena within, uh, and I haven't really done that much research into it, but just through uh, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, uh, that it's just something that just doesn't really come up as far as their research. So it's interesting now that, you know, in his, you know, elder years he's he's talking about this openly yeah well th- they're they're mostly interested in psi and in also consciousness and how it affects science and how it, that whole dialogue of being a scientific a scientific empirical mindset and in, in where consciousness enters into that and how it changes that approach which is pretty amazing if you think about it because you know that's what quantum physics is all about and so it has to change. Hey, what are you working on now? Any projects on the on the table for you? Yeah, I'm doing one that's called Superconscious. So it's about people who have special gifts and abilities. And um, I've already made quite a few interviews for this. Um, but I kind of want to do it in a different way. So I'm not totally sure how it's all going to play out. But I, I just keep shooting every every once in a while and uh, once this the hidden hand is a little bit further along then I'll I'll get into a more rigorous shooting editing frame of mind and so there's another there's another there's another film I want to do um, right now I have a working title called reverse dog psychology and um, that's a, a narrative film about a, a group of young activists who like they're in their early 20s and they really think that they're going to be able to change the world and they kind of poo-poo anyone who's over 25 as kind of lost and failed. And um, so it's kind of a way to talk about current events and subjects, but it's a way to have fun with it too. Oh, okay. Interesting. Now for the yeah. Superconscious Project, now, um, and so I'm visually seeing it in my mind's eye just as 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 – similar to the hidden hand, the documentary format with, with, uh, you know, interviews. And, um, so it, have, have, it might be quite different than that. I mean, you know, it, it might be more where it might be more kind of a cinema verite type approach. I mean, I, I love the, the beautiful imagery and everything, but in a way I felt maybe I could add more storytelling and kind of more visceral. So, so that's that's what I'm thinking about having a different style. Okay, and and what type? Who have you interviewed? It's, can I ask? Anyone yeah. I might have heard of, or? Oh, definitely. Um, you just give me a second. Um, well, Sharon Gannon. Now, definitely. Sharon Gannon, you talked about is the, she's the yoga teacher that you talked about in uh, um, when I mentioned who did she's not a, make it. Yeah, the founder of Jiva Mukti Yoga. Now, here's a question: Is she a contactee, or has she had any of her own? No, ET experiences? not that I know of. And, okay. and Alex Gray, I don't know if you know him. Over Alex Gray, the painter, who has his studio yeah. somewhere in Chelsea there. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's amazing. And now then, here's a question. Uh, now is he a contactee that you know of? He's he's certainly now. Here's the reason I ask that is because he's certainly acting like one, in the sense that he's doing the things that I found that you know that is a pattern for contactees doing very, uh, you know, creative stuff, artist stuff, uh, uh, very much at the forefront of what would be kind of a new thought movement. Yes, I mean he's I. I don't. I haven't talked to him about that, but I know he's had at least on, um, you know, ayahuasca and those kind of drugs. He's he's had some kind of interaction. I don't know exactly his whole story. I didn't ask him about that, but he's a very fun guy. I, I like him a lot. He's, um, you know, I asked him um, to say something about superconscious, and he took the light and he put it under his chin, you know, to where he'd look like a malevolent monster, and and then he was. At like an advertising voice saying, you know, consciousness isn't enough. You need super consciousness. You know, it was it was fun. Um, yeah. So, and I've talked to Jay Marcus in Brazil, who's a um, he's a a leader of um, Santo Daime. I don't know if you know that. It's kind of a mixture of shamanism, Kundumble, and Christian Christianity. And he's quite interesting guy. Another guy, Yogadish, is a very interesting guy. He he grew up. I don't know exactly where he grew up, but he spent you know many 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 years in uh, India and just doing very hard spiritual practices. And uh, he's an amazing guy. He studied with Carlos Castaneda, which I, I love, and um, Lynn McTaggart. Uh, I even interviewed Lynn Moulton Halligan. She has a lot to say on this subject. Um, a guy, uh, a guy in Indonesia who's kind of amazing, who has uh, a whole school teaching people how to defend themselves with chi without fighting and in, in striking other people. Um, a, a woman called Hagida who, who was struck by lightning and a, another woman who was struck by lightning and, and kind of really opened her up. And um, I've talked to Uri Geller, Valerie Hunt. Do you know Valerie Hunt? No, who's Valerie Hunt? She's amazing. She's 96 years old. She's a, a biochemist, and uh, she's, I think, also a physicist. Or I don't know. She's got two degrees, but she's also a clairvoyant. And so she, she was one of the first ones to actually test the the human aura and and the organs, and then make diagnosis uh, and saying, okay, well, you don't have enough of this in your in your body in your field you, we need to supplement it otherwise you're going to get cancer so she can make those kind of diagnoses and she's pretty amazing um rupert sheldrake i've talked to I, oh I rupert love. sheldrake i have a huge soft spot for rupert sheldrake yeah yeah and paul lowe i don't know if you know him he was paul um, lowe he's the spiritual leader who uh uh yeah english guy right yeah yeah um and um then i've interviewed some some a Huachal shaman and then a, a, also a Mayan shaman from Guatemala uh, that's d different from Humbat's men. So I think, and I'm sure I've done other, and a, a medium in, in Sao Paulo, Carmen Balestro, so a couple a couple different kinds of people. So that's how it's coming together right now. Uri how, Geller, I interviewed. How was that? I was just going to ask you, what was Uri Geller like? He's always been one of those kind of, you know, uh, I mean, it's just because he's so theatrical. I just remember being a little kid and seeing him on, on Johnny Carson. 
Well, I have to say I liked him a lot. He's a very pleasant guy. That's and, my sense is that he's very, you know, very genial and very uh, likable guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a lot to him. He's a very complex man, I think. And um, I liked visiting him. It was it was funny. He has this huge house on the Thames River. It's very noble. And um, he was friendly and very gracious. Huh, that's fast. Okay, good, good. And when um, now, what's your sense? My sense is that he, and this is actually, I know there's a lot of information out there. I have not read that much about him. I know there's a very interesting book about uh, Uri Geller out there, and and a part of that book uh, involves you know him talking about his UFO sightings. And anytime someone talks about having more than one UFO sighting, um, the the little the little alarm goes off in my head, and I just suspect strongly that the person is a, an abductee or a contactee. Well, he he was. In, he was raised in Tel Aviv, and when he was, I think, five or six, he was struck by light that made him fall over and uh, totally changed him. And then after that, he, and he says that that was ET consciousness that, that it hit him, whatever it was, it came from ETs. And then, you know, he would, after that, he would start eating and the forks would start bending. So he had, he, he developed size skills right after that. And that is something that, that's very much a part of the overall phenomena. That's, that's actually something that, that I don't like about MUFON, um, is that MUFON, like on their questionnaire, they don't ask the person who saw the UFO, you know, okay, here's, has, how has your consciousness changed? How has your sense of reality changed? Um, do you have any heightened sense of psychic skills since your UFO experience? Um, well, most... Most abductees and contactees that I talk to, they seem to be more psychic and more artistic. And that, uh, you know, that that's actually, if I had a questionnaire, which I don't, I should make one up, um, you know, those are the questions I am more interested in asking rather than, you know, uh, whatever, like was the UFO, you know, at, at an arm's length bigger or smaller than a quarter, you know, which is the questions that do show up on these kind of very nuts and bolts things. Yeah, so, yeah, I agree completely um, that, that uh, that the creative types, uh, and oftentimes, you know, I talked to one guy. His name is Chris Bledsoe, uh, mm-hmm. and I spent some time with him at his uh, in North Carolina. Amazing guy, mm-hmm. uh, and he had a very profound sighting. And then he started painting and drawing, mm-hmm. and, and this is this is normal, mm-hmm. and no one's tapping into this in, as far as the way the research is being presented publicly. Well, there is someone. There's the the woman in Australia. Uh, what's her name? Oh, Mary Rodwell. Mary Rodwell. Yes, she she you know kind of collects different artists and their their associations with abduction or in contact. And I think she's doing a good job, right? Yeah. Oh, I, I agree. Yeah. And and but it but it is not part of the. Um, I'll say it. It's not part of the documentary scene. It's not part of the pop culture. You know, we're we're flooded at this point with late night documentaries of of you know the the the, the version of the abduction or contact experience is done with spooky lighting and dramatic music and reenactments of just the darkest, creepiest stuff. And so you know, you watch these things and they're presented it seems to me for folks with a very short attention span. So all you get from the contact experience in the pop culture is that, um, you know, these scary things happen and you're treated like a lab rat. Mm -hmm. 
And there's, it's a lot more complicated than that and a lot richer. It's very rich. That's one thing I've noticed. It seems like even if people have similar stories, there's always something totally bizarre and left out of left field from some of their the events that had happened to them. Uh, you know, and then it's just, you th even with Whitley, where, where he, when he, the first time he, he has a conscious abduction or he, that he remembers the, when he was abducted, he, his friend was on the craft with him and his friend was dead. And I think he wasn't even aware of it at the time, but so he was interacting with his friend who was dead on the craft, which is kind of amazing. But it's it's something that happens fairly frequently. Yes. Yeah. And and there is this bizarre aspect to it. And that's that as to me is where I love well, how to say, it. you know, that's where I'm, that's where I'm drawn to. I'm drawn to these very, very strange stories. And though the stories themselves are different, there's a tone and a tenor and almost a flavor to these stories that is that is similar or that I sense is being similar. And, um, you know, and that's where I'm being drawn to. Here's a question. Has any stuff with owls show up in the production or as you talk to these folks? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a cameraman that I work with every once in a while. His daughter has this huge owl that is just stands looking at her, you know, often, very often, this huge owl is just staring at her from the window seal. And so the, the child reports this and, and, uh, and I tell him, look at, you know, it's probably not an owl. And, um, but well, they, so wait a minute. So someone working on a documentary. About no, no, this is just a, a cameraman, a professional cameraman that I work with sometimes or I see sometimes. And he told me the story about his daughter who has this huge owl that stands right outside the window staring at her very often during very, the night. Yeah. And um, I, I said, hey, that's not an owl, you know, and, <laughs> but he hasn't thought it was important to explore it any further. Very interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's that's actually what I've been sort of digging into uh, is just these owl stories. I mean, I've heard so many stories exactly like just what you're just what just what you're saying there um, about owls somehow being involved in this phenomena. Some of them I am quite convinced are real owls. Some of them are are screen memories and and some of them are very hard to figure out what is going on. It sounds much more bizarre than either of those. Mm hmm. I remember one time I was sitting next to the Elba and it was the evening coming on and this barn owl came down and landed on my head and then took off again real quickly. Wait and a minute, a barn owl landed on your hand? Head. Oh, head. Yeah, just very quickly and then took off. And, and uh, this was, you know, a short one. It was only like about maybe 12 inches high. And it was almost like it was playing with me, but it was also like saying, hey, this is this is my territory here. Oh, that's so it is not uncommon for people to get their hats knocked off by owls. That is actually right. reported fairly commonly. Um, and then the thought is that you would be like in in their in the location of their nest and they would be somehow protecting um, their nest or potentially their children. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And so you were near that. What you, when you said, oh, the Elba, the river. Yeah. OK, OK. I was thinking when you said Elba, I'm like, wait a minute, is that like some restaurant in New York I'm supposed to know? So They don't have a lot of barn owls here in New York. They do have some owls, though. They're actually owls that could do get reported in the city, and they, they actually live off of pigeons, is my understanding. So. Well, then they'd be feasting here. Yeah, that's, that's why they're there, exactly. So. <laughs> Let me just run through the little the things here. It seems like uh, 
I got all the questions I wrote down asked. Let's just look at the clock. We've been going at it about an hour and 20 minutes. How are you holding up? Good. Here, and is there anything you feel like you want to add or anything that you feel like we've missed that, that you wish we had talked about? Well, let me put it this way. In one sense, I feel like I could keep on going on and make it like, like I think I could easily make three-part series out of that from this film, just going kind of deeper into it. And, and that's at one on one hand, I would like to, because it would be fun, and, and I've actually have so much material. On the other hand, I feel artistically, maybe it would be a little limiting and, and um, wouldn't get to explore some of the other stuff that I want to explore. So I feel like a, a back and forth battle a little bit in terms of like my next step. It would be so easy for me to put out a, a, a part two and then maybe a part three and and delve deeper into some of these other aspects. But on the other hand, you know, it's so cool to to speak with Amachi. Do you know Amachi? No. The Hugging Saint? You never heard of Ama? No. But like I interviewed her briefly for this superconscious. I mean, she's an amazing woman, just incredible. You know, uh, she's came from the poorest Indian, South Indian town and, you know, has built up this huge organization and I don't know that this woman is amazing when Hurricane Katrina hit the next day she gave eight million dollars just so they could have you know some food and supplies and she's so it's it's I feel also I I, I want to explore these other topics and I don't want to just stay on this one one lane of expression even though it's interrelated with everything. I agree. I agree. And it's interesting that you, you, the conclusion of one documentary ends with the galactic consciousness, and then your next project just run, jumps right into super consciousness. I mean, right. they and, sort of and, blend together. Yeah, like yesterday, I, I saw Deva Primal. I don't know if you know her, but um, she's just incredible. And I, I met her, you know, some years ago in, in India, and when I went and saw her last night, and saw her and Mitten, her partner, they, it was just the highest level of correctness and spirituality. And they got 500 people to sing in unison. And not even, even like the men were singing one song and the women were singing another song. And it was so beautiful. And then he, they would have the men turn to the women and sing to each other. And it was so intimate in, incredible in a way and uh i don't know it just uh, that's a lot of richness i would like to also delve in in that area yep yeah it's so and that's so my sense is and i've said this before and other people have said something similar but um you know that that's what i find so fascinating about the ufo topic i mean you start off the dialogue talking about little lights in the sky mm -hmm. and then it doesn't take too long, you know, if you're thoughtful and, and somehow that you, you end up winding up talking about God mm -hmm. or, you, t you know, or super consciousness, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're talking that the, the UFO phenomena is somehow intertwined with, with our, how to say it, like one person said, you know, that, that the, uh, and I can't remember who it is now, said that um, the UFOs are here to make us think. And, and it just, it's the, the just being confronted with something so strange forces anyone to contemplate, you know, some of the higher, the highest 
and deepest questions? Well, I don't think, I think it's more than contemplating because I think the contemplating is the, the least amount of it. It's more like they're here to stretch our being, our beingness. And, you know, if you're aware of being in three dimensionality, then when you interact with these beings, you become aware that you're interacting with n dimensionality. And that kind of, if you practice that enough, then it becomes common in every day and that's where we have the expansion of our consciousness and where we're going as a as a race yes and i'm i'm skeptical of like you know what the what's what's down the collective uh, vanishing point you know where are we headed i would love it if we were heading towards a higher consciousness sometimes i have my doubts you know doing things like reading the newspaper will put me into you know kind of bring me down but um my hope certainly is that that's the direction we're going. And I certainly sense that when I talk to abductees, you know, more than researchers, when I talk to abductees, I am uh, elevated in a sense because the, the, the dialogue and the, the power and the resonance of, 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 of uh, you know, just wrestling with these experiences, you know, forces me to, to think at a higher level. Yeah, I think you know it's it's. I think it's also very easy to see like the negative. What's going on? We have you know, a, a world government that's becoming increasingly more fascistic. We have, we're, we're basically tearing up the environment f- faster than we can think about it. We have overpopulation problems. We've got all all these kind of huge major problems besides kind of just a controlled idiocy that goes on but like just think of what's happened since you know from the 60s you know we've got women's rights we've got gay rights we've got just environmentally consciousness that's that came about um we've got you know people were interested in people who have disabilities uh you know children's rights uh just i was at the un the other day and and they, they were talking about how you know, before you, you would have picture, show, uh, take pictures of yourself with your children with their rifles. And, and, you know, it was you could be proud that your children had a job being a, a soldier and, and you can't do that anymore. And so th- things are changing in a lot of very, very good and profound ways, too. And um, so I think we can't forget that. Yes. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And, and I do. And I in the big picture, I feel like I am optimistic about humanity. I agree. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's two things happening at the same time. And to me, I just sense that these two things, you know, like I just see it as a, as a race almost, you know, like this converging lines on a chart, you know, like, oh my gosh, when these things cross, you know, what does that mean? You know, where are we headed? So I, and I just, the, the human spirit I feel is, is uh, profoundly capable of tackling enormous problems, though it has to be engaged somehow um, Pearl Harbor is one example that mobilized an entire country to to do something that, that you know. So we collectively, as humanity, need a a Pearl Harbor that would uh, activate us in a way to create collective good. I don't know what that means, really, but that's my sense. Yeah, well, stay tuned, right? We'll we'll see. We're, what's... Whatever we're on, it's a one way <laughs> yeah. road. You know, we're yeah. we're headed towards that. You know, the 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 arrow of time is is, is dragging us. You know, ever forward. So. Uh, well, the one thing that impressed me, like last night, is with with David Primal, is that you know, rather than engaging the problem with 
in the, of course, we've talked, there's enough of them. Everything they produced was extremely positive. And, it's, and it wasn't saying like, th those problems aren't there. It was just saying, for right now, let's just be and live on this level and this consciousness. And I think this is why I think it's important to be balanced. It's like to be aware of what's going on and be aware that there's a kind of negativity, but in your life, do as much good and bring about as much good as possible. And on that note, I will say that your documentary has the potential to uh, put some very powerful ripples into the pond, mm -hmm. uh, being that um, you know you treat a subject with absolute seriousness. It's not done for entertainment. It's incredibly captivating, and it and it and it attempts to wrestle with a lot of the divergent and challenging aspects of the phenomena. And I just I just have to say that I loved it when I saw it in 2008, and just just having watched it. Uh, a few minutes before we rolled into this interview, as I was impressed again at the at the what you managed to squeeze into those, uh, you know, what amounts to uh, how many minutes long is it? It's eighty minutes. Into eighty minutes, yeah. I'm very impressed. Cool. Okay, Mike. So it's it's been a pleasure, and um, uh, I'm I'm really glad we've reconnected. It for me, it means a lot to me because I, I really respect you and I really respect your work. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank I will you. talk to you soon. Bye now. Okay. Bye. Hi, this is Mike. I am chiming in at the conclusion of the editing process of, of the audio here. I am including a few little snippets that I took from the documentary. The initial voice you'll hear is the narrator from the documentary that's followed up um, by the astronaut Edgar Mitchell, talking about his what amounts to a spiritual awakening uh, while he was returning from the moon. The other clip is from Whitley Strieber. And then you'll hear the narrator giving what is the summation of the, of the overall documentary. This is, this is only just a few minutes long, but I think it'll give you an insight into the flavor of what James was trying to convey in this very personal project. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. Is it our destiny to go to the stars, to remain successful as a species? Will we become better predators? Or will we learn to love even those creatures who are strange and frightening to us? Perhaps we will reach not only distant galaxies, but explore higher dimensions of reality. The experience of watching the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun, and a 360-degree panorama of the heavens appear every two minutes and being more deep and profound than anything you can see on Earth. It was suddenly an emotional experience of experiencing viscerally a sense of oneness with all that I could see.
a new kind of openness and acceptance of the unknown is spreading all through our culture and nobody knows it. The media still thinks in these brain-dead cliches, good aliens versus bad aliens, when you have lots of ordinary people who are becoming hyperdimensional beings very quietly in their own living rooms. When this kind of change comes to the human mind, there's always the same disconnect. The people in power get left behind. Since the much-publicized saucer crash at Roswell, New Mexico in 1947, our cultural openness to contact with extraterrestrial life has grown exponentially. Is there really life on other planets? Tonight we have never before seen videotape of UFOs over Colorado. Stories of extraterrestrial contact are portrayed in the media with increasing frequency. Is this because we are embracing a true planetary phenomenon? Or are we being conditioned into believing mass media UFO hype? Are the sources in the sky secret military craft or ships from other dimensions? Are we being programmed by the media to view aliens as a common enemy so the need for war will never cease? Are ETs spiritually advanced beings concerned with the fate of humanity? Or are they the demons that have plagued us since the beginning of time? If a hybrid race is being created, what does this mean for humanity? Are we being replaced like a tired breed of plow horse? Or is this a foreshadowing of the kinds of creatures our scientists will soon create in our own labs? The answers to these questions are not easy to find. Neither the secret government nor the ETs are forthcoming. So much is shrouded behind veils of national security. At some point, the secrecy will be lifted. At some point, this will all come to light. <laughs>